Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwarzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Warren DeHaan, CEO and co-founder of Acor. Acor is one of the largest private lenders in the country. They touch every single real estate asset class. Warren is a tremendous guy. You're just going to love listening to him. It's not because the accent, it's what he has to say. We discuss everything from why being private is an advantage, how Acor is different from other lenders, why does he focus on transitional loans instead of permanent financing, what asset classes he shies away from, how the debt markets has changed since Warren's started in real estate, how his business model works, what he thinks about personal guarantees, and where he's deploying capital in the upcoming years. Please enjoy my conversation today with Warren DeHaan. All right, Warren. So we were just talking in kind of the little warm up about you moving to Miami and how it was so influential to your business and what you're working on. So I'd love to start there. We're in Fort Lauderdale right now. You moved to Miami. You called me when you were considering moving. Why did you move to Miami? Well, sometimes for good information, you have to go to the mountain to find the information. <laughs> and you were very helpful in, in some guidance for us. The decision to move to the East Coast was really primarily driven by my travel paths. Acor, probably 50% of my time plus is spent on the East Coast one way or another. So the commute from California to New York was becoming tedious. And that was really the primary driver. The obviously it was a difficult and complicated decision when you've got a 13 and 15 year old kids and my wife. But by and large, they were incredibly supportive of seeing a little more of me. And I think putting that as a forefront of one's objectives, I think is important, certainly for me and for my family. But the big surprises really were a few things. One is, and I'm not sure people actually fully grasp this sitting in other cities, but the governance in Florida, by and large, with some exceptions, is outstanding. As an entrepreneur and someone who's built multiple businesses and we have 120 people and the other day, it was really interesting. My son asked me, what exactly do I do? And I, I said to him, well, you know, we're a financier and we do this and we support the entrepreneurs through our capital. But he said, no, no what do you really do? And so I took a moment to figure out how many people we actually touch and what the economic multiplier is of our business, whether it's hiring lawyers, whether it's payroll, whether it's all the service providers that we use. The economic multiplier is extremely large in terms of how we, the impact we have on our communities and otherwise. And I think that at the forefront of taking risk 
as an entrepreneur is the ability to feel safe in taking risk. Now, we all understand what it means to take financial risk if you're buying a hotel or financing something. And I think we can box in that risk fairly well, given experience. But the outliers that made me uncomfortable is governance and taxation and changing regulations. And for example, the sudden mansion tax that was imposed on owners of real estate in the city of Los Angeles yep. of four to five and a half percent, virtually wiping out 25% of the equity of any building you own if it's levered. So the orders of magnitude are huge when you talk about governance. Not to knock California, it's an absolutely fantastic state, one of the most beautiful places in the world, but they're running a $32 billion budget deficit right now. The cities of San Francisco, Los Angeles are troubled. And this starts with governance. On the contrary, here, whether it's here in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Palm Beach, Miami, there's a psychological difference that happens when you sit down at dinner with your friends or your kids' friends or your business associates. And there's this degree of let's get it done that doesn't exist in some of these other states. The dialogue is also very positive here in Florida. And I got to tell you, that has been a breath of fresh air. A few other really you know, incredible things is I think because of that positivity that's generated, partly because of governance and, and a few other reasons, it's magnetic. And so it brings out high quality conversation. It brings out constructive conversation. It's how can we do this as opposed to why are we not doing it? That trickles down through your children and it trickles down through your dinner conversation. I think a few other things that are interesting besides the governance is, as you well know, I, I like the water and being out in the water and the ability to go to the Bahamas in 90 minutes, the ability to be in Ocean Reef, ability to be down in the Keys, the ability just to go out and fish and be with your family is a huge plus. So net-net, when I sit down with my family and I say to them, how do we feel about this? It's exceeded our expectations, not just at my level, but also at their level, not just at a business level, from a proximity perspective, taxation perspective, and governance perspective, but also just from a sheer happiness, point of happiness. People that I encounter in Florida are just happy. I'm happy. Like every day that I'm with my family on the weekends, I look around and see where I am and it's got to make you smile. And there are team members that we have in other parts of the country. And I don't know that they have the same level of energy about going to work or being in their community like what we have here in Florida and maybe in other states like Texas or perhaps the Carolinas. How is that informing how you're investing and deploying capital, if at all? Yeah, we, so look, we'll deploy last year $7.5 billion in new loans. We're one of the largest non-bank lenders in the country. So we are obviously looking to migration patterns. And these migration patterns are fairly distinct and understandable and quantifiable. We've seen what's happened in Texas with folks moving from various states to Texas. I have a few friends that have moved there, and these are the last people I ever thought would leave California. And the contrary personalities to the traditional Texan, and they've never been happier. And I find that interesting. So go into depth and figure it out. It's, it's similar patterns of behavior and benefits. So from an investment perspective, we have a $21 billion portfolio. We have five offices. So it's San Francisco, Los Angeles. Dallas, New York, now Miami. Our largest offices in Dallas and New York, and two offices in California are pretty big. In terms of portfolio distribution, we're pretty well distributed across the country. So, but as it relates to this question of 
migration, if you take a look at multifamily as an example and growth in multifamily rents, we've seen a decline, generally speaking, in multifamily rents over the last couple of months, but South Florida continues to outperform. Texas continues to perform very well. There's very real reasons for people to want to be there, to enhance their lives, to improve their lives, whether it's cost of living, job opportunities, waking up every day to sunshine, various attributes like that. So we believe in those migration patterns and that will drive demand for office. It'll drive demand for corporate headquarters and office office space, clearly multifamily, housing, all attributes, and then discretionary spend. So to the extent you're saving 15% of your taxes, there's more likely than not going to be more uh, discretionary spend in those markets, thus you know stimulating hotel ADRs and occupancies as well as retail and boats. So, uh, and, and, and boats, you can't get one if you try. You can. It's hard. So you obviously didn't just pick Miami on a whim, and you've seen these trends happening. What would you say is the biggest shift that you've seen? Call it since the Great Financial Crisis to now that's happened in Miami and, and maybe Texas as well, because you have an office there. But I don't even think we need to go back to the great financial crisis. I mean, we can just go to pre-COVID. So I think the catalyst for the recognition of how great the lifestyle is, but also the recognition from an employer's perspective to say, hey, this work from home thing is okay. So executives on many of these firms, it's okay for them to live in Florida. Go back to 2018, it was like, you live in Florida, you must be an entrepreneur or something or in the healthcare service, but you're not a finance person, right? right? You need to be in New York City for that or Los Angeles. That's changed. We, that's completely changed. And so what we've seen is the shift to these markets, big companies, you know, certainly the Citadel move is a big move and you can list off a bunch more. The, the rumor about Guggenheim, we'll see how that manifests itself. The companies that have moved to Texas, plenty of them. So, I mean, that is the big change. So you're an entrepreneur. How do you work and how have you navigated this work from home environment in your company and what have you found to be the best solution? Yeah, I don't think we know the best solution at this point. I think it's ever changing. As an entrepreneur, you need to move and change with the times. For us, we like being in the office. I remember when I was on the trading desk at Nomura in 1997 and it was like, sitting in front of a fire hose of information, you know, your boss is yelling at you, you know, the head of underwriting is doing this and dragging you into conversation. The head trader is, you know, talking through a situation. You're listening to three people at the same time is what you're doing. I remember actually we we had turrets, so we were able to listen into other people's conversations. And you can't do that from home. No. And for me personally, I think that was a critical time in my career where I was just in absorption mode, right? My dad is a big believer in, 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 in his saying, he says, someday somebody will pay you for what you know, right? So the job then is to know as much as you can, as quickly as you can. And the only way to do that is to be at the epicenter of the information flow. So at our company, we, uh, you know, I'm fond of calling it uh, knowledge transfer. So how do we transfer knowledge between people? If someone's sitting at home on their couch eating nachos, you know, <laughs> and drinking Coca-Cola, I, I really can't transfer my knowledge while I'm sitting on a conversation to that particular person. So what's happened is we have obviously provided the flexibility for people one or two days a week. We're trying to obviously narrow that down to a shorter period of time. If you want two days with exception from your, your, your manager, that's okay. But we're really trying to put people back in the office because 
from firsthand experience, I know what it takes to be successful in our business and being present is a key to being successful. So we try and stimulate this kind of behavior. We went, we just got into it, why you're living in Miami, but how did you even get here? How did you get to Miami? Can you break down your path into business and real estate? And you have an accent, so I don't think you're from the United States. Yeah, as I say, I have, I have two, two assets. One is my accent, and the second is I have two zeros at the end the of my cell The asset's really powerful. No, the two zeros will be powerful one day, <laughs> right? At the end of my cell phone number, you know? Um, population growth, everyone has cell phones these days. I was actually remembering my first cell phone I got in 1997 when I was an analyst at Nomura. And I remember hiding it in my suit, my briefcase, because I felt out of place because I had a cell phone. <laughs> Just think about that. Anyway, I grew up in South Africa. My father uh, was an entrepreneur and my mother, who worked with him in the lumber business. They came from sort of a more industrial kind of background, never had an opportunity to go to university, just go and he has a pack of cigarettes and go work. But they always strove to be part of you know, the more educated crowd, and the more successful crowd, and they were highly ambitious, but they knew that they had a deficiency in their education. So they always wished that for us, that we have the best education possible, my two sisters and I. So I would, did high school and then I spent a year at university in South Africa and I basically failed every class that was possible to fail. And it was a little bit soul destroying for my parents and for me because my father couldn't understand why it was that I had been given this opportunity, but I was underperforming. And eventually he bought me a tent and, you know, he said, I got to kick you out the house because you, you suck, basically. <laughs> but he was, it was in South Africa, so it's a little bit dangerous. So he said, look, I'll buy your tent. You go hang out in the garden. So that's literally what I did for a while. But I managed to get to the sympathy nerve of my mother and uh, she brought me back into the house. But the point there is, is that I was doing something I had no interest in doing, which is basically studying for me sociology when I wanted to be on, this, on the business side. And I, it, it was just in, incredibly tiresome to me to watch the reason behind Chinese foot binding as an example. That's just not me. Absolutely. And I felt like that was a gross waste of my time, but I didn't have an ability to, to articulate that properly. And so while I was at a great university and I had plenty of really successful friends coming out, it wasn't a recipe for me. I just sort of lucked out in the sense that my mother found an opportunity for, for me to go to hotel management school in Switzerland. She knew I always had an interest in it, what it meant we didn't know, but I literally got on a plane and went to Switzerland for three years and worked in hotels in London, Zurich, and Geneva, back of house. Sounds more glamorous than it is. And, and that was a great experience. And then, and then I was working at a hotel and I was earning 13,000 pounds a year at the Dorchester Hotel in London. Great hotel. Great hotel for a guest. Yes. Uh, or for a front of, front of the house person. They just renovated that hotel. It's an incredible place. But I didn't see it. I only saw the kitchens. And I remember earning 13,000 pounds a year going up to Park Lane to the McLaren store. And I walked into the McLaren store and the McLaren was 540,000 pounds. And I said, if I save every single pound I'm making, don't spend a, a pound. It'll take me 40 years to afford this car. I kind of need a new plan. And I was very lucky at the time to have the opportunity to go to Cornell, to the hotel management program. And that really was the catalyst for, for the catapult to put me into the finance industry. Immediately, I grasped onto it. I loved it. I was passionate about it. I did extremely well academically. I found the networking magnetic. I found every opportunity I could to talk to business leaders and just absorb as much information as possible. And it was actually quite a funny story because at the time, you know, if JP Morgan was coming to campus or Goldman Sachs, it would say green card holders or Americans only, 
no foreign nationals. And they literally had, you could, could either put your resume on or not. Wow. And I had been dinged by JP Morgan and I think Goldman because I was a foreigner. And Nomura came around and they posted the same stupid box there. And my professor at the time, a gentleman named Jack Cordial, was like, you need to go there is what you need to do. This is where it's all happening. And so I said, okay, but I put my resume in the box and it said no foreigners, basically, which was a little insulting and sort of weird in today's day and age. And lo and behold, they called me. They said, oh, we don't care about that. Sorry, it was a mistake. <laughs> and came in and I got the job instantly. And that's where I met my partners today in Acor. And we've grown multiple businesses since then. And I was given the opportunity then to be thrown in the deep end. And this is at a time when CMBS was the hottest product on Wall Street. We were the hottest company. And I was given the opportunity to, to literally sink or swim. So at Nomura, you were doing CMBS? Correct. That's all we really did. And we did some bridge loans, some construction loans, but I was thrown into everything. So not only hospitality, but all other property types. And I had a great opportunity to work for a gentleman named Chuck Rosenzweig, who has taught me a lot of things about how to negotiate and how to do this business, in addition to you know, various other people that taught me a lot. So fast forward from there, we went the entrepreneurship route and started a couple of businesses, buying multifamilies and doing advisory work. And then Countrywide Commercial. So Countrywide was the largest mortgage company in the world at the time. They didn't have a commercial real estate business at all. And they were looking for a team on the West Coast. And we were the team. So they basically bought us out. And we went there and built about the fourth largest CMBS business. We we're doing about $15 billion a year with the CMBS loans. Uh, and then the great financial crisis hit in 2008. But call it luck or otherwise, our boss who ran the RMBS business, the residential business, which was orders of magnitude 10x larger, he said, there's trouble in paradise on the residential side. The bonds are trading very differently in the residential side, anticipating really bad news. The commercial bonds are holding in tight. These particular bonds trade in parallel or in sync. You know, there's a correlation between how they trade, but we don't know exactly what the correlation is. So, at any point in time, we had about $4 billion of loans in position waiting to go and execute in a CMBS pool that we put a lot of shorts on. So uh, CDS, CMBX shorts, et cetera, to hedge our position. It's very expensive. We were one of the only shops on Wall Street to do that. Secondly, we took those loans and we started selling them sort of at a loss. You know, 98, 95, the last one we sold at like 50 cents. Wow. But we had the hedge on the other side. So- in fact, every year we, we were there, we made a significant amount of profit, including in 2008, when B of A took over the parent company countrywide. And they were like, oh my gosh, this stuff's perfectly hedged. We have a huge hedge gain. It's a small, we're down to like $200 million of loans. And they treated us extremely well in terms of change of control. Subsequent to that, we went on to do more advisory work, some really complicated stuff. And then Barry Sternley came along and said, look, Guys, we just raised this blind pool to go and make loans, publicly traded, externally managed property trust. And he raised $900 million to go and do that, but he didn't have the team to go and execute on that. So he hired us and within four years, we built that to the largest commercial mortgage REITs, at the time, five and a half billion market cap, plus, plus or minus. And that was a great experience in terms of convincing Blackstone to borrow from Starwood. So... The opportunity for the non-bank sector emerged at that time 
because of regula- the regulations that came in in 2008. Dodd-Frank, Basel III, and all that really means is that the banks were taking on risk that they shouldn't have been taking. And so the regulators said, come on, ladies and gentlemen, you shouldn't be taking on this risk. You need to move these businesses off your balance sheet. You need to delever your balance sheets. And all that other stuff can get done by these non-bank lenders, mortgage REITs and otherwise, which was true. We then took advantage of it and built it to $5.5 billion market cap and then left for various reasons, mostly positive. And then we started Acor Capital. And at Acor, we had this phenomenal opportunity to go and do what we had done before, but this time for ourselves in scale. And we were given a billion dollar uh, equity commitment from the largest uh, insurance company in Japan. And that is subsequently, we now manage about 13 billion for them. And then another insurance company came along, we managed about $4 billion for them. And then we've grown our fund business fairly significantly too on the back of that to get to 21 billion, making us one of the largest commercial real estate finance, non-bank lenders out there. And there's one thing I just want to add to this because it's obviously important to today's market, which is very challenged. That thing that happened in 2008, where there's the separation between the behavior of the banks and the non-banks, that was, call it, 1.0. 1.0. Where we are today, the regional banking crisis, this is 2.0. And the 2.0, in my opinion, is going to be worse than the 1.0, where we have all these regional banks that constitute about 70, 75% of all loans, auto loans, student loans, everything else come from the regional banking system. Unfortunately, the regional banking system is in deep turmoil right now. And it wouldn't surprise me if 50, 75, 100 of these banks get taken back by the FDIC. So what does that mean for liquidity in the overall markets? It means that we have $2.5 trillion of debt coming due in the next five years. The banks are are retrenching, pulling back. The regional banks are hurting. And this void needs to be filled. I mean, you're a borrower. You borrow a lot of money. The markets are thin in in terms of liquidity. And if I was to forecast the next 12 or 18 months, it's going to be even thinner in terms of liquidity available in the markets. Well, I think it's going to be a boom for you. Should be. So, I mean, you manage 20-something billion. Now I probably have 20-something billion questions based on everything you just said. One place that I want to go is I think that a lot of big people in finance and politicians heavily underestimated how much guys like me and some of your borrowers rely on the regional banking system to do their deals. I do not bank with JP Morgan. I don't bank with Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Maybe on the CMBS side, we've done deals with some of those groups, but not their balance sheet side. I deal with regional banks. That's who gives me loans. Are those now just going to go away or are they changing their model and now I'm going to go to you for all my projects? Well, I mean, there's so many structural problems and I'll try and keep this this brief, right? But Firstly, if you talk to the folks that run the big banks, JP, Deutsche Bank, uh, JP, sorry, um, uh, Citibank, Bank of America, and so on, they will tell you that there was two sets of regulations. There was the regulations for them, right. which they followed to the T, and then there were the regulations for the regional banks, which were a eh, little different. Okay, And I have friends that have run both sides of these banks. And that's probably a true statement. This whole idea... And it's really unfortunate, right? Because when we were in a very low interest rate environment, the liability side of the balance sheet for a bank is the deposits. Effectively, we are lending the banks money 
by making deposits. But it's human psychology that banks are a safe place to be with your deposits, right? Correct. I've referred to this as like, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like food, water, housing, my savings need to be safe. And this idea of a $250,000 insurance policy, that's just a byproduct. People don't really focus on it. How many businesses have more than $250,000 in the regional banking system? Like it's most of them, right? Yeah. But m- most of these people don't think about a run on the bank. Then rates, uh, so, so in order to get yield at the banks, the CFOs, CEOs, risk managers needed to layer in an asset side that would create a spread between the, pe- the amount they're paying Jake and the amount that they need to earn on the assets in order to make a profit and a return on equity, drive the stock price up, but also to bolster their capital on their balance sheets. But when rates ran, which was unexpected for all of us at this rate, the rate at which rates increased is unlike anything we've literally seen. And because the math was you have to account for this on a mark-to-market basis, meaning on literally a daily, weekly, monthly basis, quarterly basis, you have to have a fair market value of those securities. We know when rates go up, bond prices generally come down. So whether they're buying treasuries, which are perfectly safe assets, mark to market showed a massive hole in the balance sheet. So that's just the first problem. If you're running a bank and you're managing the balance sheet and the assets and liabilities, in 2008, the Fed opened the window and basically said to the banks, you can come and borrow money for free against your assets. I just want to tell people it's not the same this time around. They do are offering the same idea, but they're borrowing the money at the Fed funds rate, which is now five and a quarter percent. Right. Their assets are only yielding three. That's like you buying a hotel at a three cap and borrowing at six or seven or five, yep. six, right? Yep. Somewhere in there. It's 101 of finance. You don't do that because unless you've got real growth, otherwise you're going to have a negative return. That's what the banks are doing right now. So what's that? what does that mean to the banks? That's impacting their return on equity like it would you would in one of your properties. The other problem, that's, there's two other problems going on. One is the regulators are crawling all over the banks right now. Okay, So they are going to slow the money supply to bring inflation down. The other problem is the management of the balance sheet. So the other day I was talking to the CEO of a regional bank, sizable regional bank. And he was quick to point out that it isn't the regulators that's the biggest issue. He said to me, look, Warren, if I made Jake a loan, 60% or 65% loan to cost loan, typical loan for you, at a low interest rate, and that was had a debt service coverage of one, four times debt service coverage. Now that rate is so high that your debt service coverage is 0.9 and your loan to value is 85, 90%. They have to now move your asset from tier one to maybe tier three. And they have to now carry or apply or allocate a much higher degree of equity capital to your loan. So depleting the balance sheet of capital and reducing their return on equity. Don't forget, return on equity is being reduced by the cost of funds, Fed funds window. They got liquidity, but it's at a higher cost. And secondly, the amount of capital. So they are under leveraged against these loans. So the banks run a real problem of both being fundamentally insolvent, but also from a market capitalization getting bombed. Now we haven't even started with the next wave of problems, which is commercial real estate as a broad sector with two and a half trillion dollars of loans coming. Okay. So let's let's talk about that. So even if my loan to value was still at 65%, I got an appraisal and the appraisal came back good and the bank's happy. The issue still exists where my debt service coverage ratio might be 
1.0 when before it was 1.5 and to get an extension, maybe I need a 1.2 or 1.4, yep. whatever it may be. So now my extension's coming up in December of this year. Yep. I think my collateral is great. I think the business is great. We all know we're at the peak of interest rates right now. If you look at the yield curve, you see it trending down. Yep. So I'm going to my lender and I'm saying, listen, I just need an extension. What are these guys going to do right now? They're challenged because as I explained, right, if this is a balance sheet problem and it's also a regulatory problem. I don't know the answer to that question. But if you were to say to me, Warren, what is the biggest question that's on your mind? The biggest question for me is what is going to happen to this wall of maturities? And I've explained the problem from a balance sheet perspective and a market cap perspective and a regulatory perspective. I don't know how it's all going to come together. We have to wait and see. Today, we learned of a large transaction, $2.5 billion transaction of PacWest selling loans to Kennedy Wilson. What we know about the loan sales market, again, I don't tell you what I know, is that the brokers have never done more brokers' opinions of value than what they've done in the last six months. I was with the president of one of the biggest brokerage firms two weeks ago having dinner in Miami. And I asked him, I said, you know, so tell me about this. What do you, what's your view? What's going to happen here? He said in the last 20 days, he did $20 billion of BOVs. In 20 days. If you follow the public banks and their earnings, you can see a fairly progressive markdown of the assets so that the earnings hit is happening in the quarter. Obviously, what the banks don't want to do is to, to have like billions of dollars of loans that are marked at, at par, and then they need liquidity and they sell them at 85 cents. So what they are doing systematically is writing these loans down to a spot where they can exit them without a big shock to, to the market. Now, that is diligent, good governance at the company level. The question is, what happens now? So you ask the question, what's happening now? I can't answer it. But the fact that PacWest is sort of like burst this bubble a little bit, pouring that out, obviously, signature banks are a completely different issue with a giant $60 billion loan sale. My estimation, when I look at Acor and we talk to investors, is the opportunity for us over the next 12, 24 months, I would say it's at least a third of our business is going to be acquiring loans from sellers that are looking for liquidity. Maybe half if it really becomes more like 1992 versus 2008. Hospitality lived through this during COVID. No other real estate asset class was really as troubled as hotels. Mm -hmm. In fact, some of our own investors, when I was explaining to them what was going on, they almost looked at me like I wasn't telling them the truth because they had a multifamily portfolio that was doubling in value and throwing off insane amounts of cash flow, and they were getting such positive reviews. It was like I was on a completely different planet. And at that time, banks typically worked with borrowers to basically extend out until things normalized. Now, hotels, everyone is up against this interest rate horizon. And when your entire loan portfolio is having the same issue, not just one, I don't know that those same accommodations can be made, particularly when banks historically, and you might be different because of your structure, only think of themselves as debt and not necessarily a partner in a real estate venture, which you might think of yourself as a partner just because of how your capital is and what your business model is. You know, I use the analogy that, that COVID was an interesting time 
when I, when I talk about the issues, I try and separate them between, is this a liquidity problem or is this a credit problem, right? COVID was obviously a liquidity problem. And the sort of analogy I use is that COVID, you know, this was an athlete, you know, a really fit girl or guy, an athlete doing marathons who had a heart attack and recovered from the heart attack really quickly. Right now, I feel like we're a heavy smoker, you know, doesn't do any exercise. And the outcomes are a little different. This could be longer protracted and some people are going to die in this equation. What we're facing here, yep. right? And so if you then translate that and look at what the lenders are doing, a lot of this has to do with not the intent of the individuals. Because I, what I would say, if, if I had to look at the lending community today, I would tell you that there's a greater degree of discipline than in 2008. The weak players were shaken out. There are many folks that ran businesses, made mistakes in 2008, and have learned from their lessons. The borrowers have learned and are borrowing less money today. They want good flexibility structure and want partners. But I think the intent is very good all around the table. But when you've got a person that has got good intent with a poor capital structure, there's not much that that lender can do. So if they're overallocated to their warehouse line and you default, they have to take that loan off the warehouse line so their return on equity drops like a stone. Right. Okay? Two, if they are in a warehouse line and they were aggregating for a CLO as an example, and Wells Fargo, I'm just using them as an example, is saying, hey, fella, you got to take your loan off my line now because it's now two years and it was supposed to only be six, nine months. Wells Fargo's balance sheet is ballooning, which we know it is. They don't have a whole lot of excess capacity. Again, tightening liquidity in the market, right? That's problematic. You know, thirdly is those that did a lot of a note, B note structures where A notes were sold to people who are now have liquidity problems. You have a co-lender that needs to opine. Maybe by pure coincidence or luck at ACOR of the 21 billion, about 17 billion of what we have is insurance company money where we own, manage the entire capital structure. So if you borrowed from us, we have 35 asset managers. We have the benefit of working through the whole structure and making the decisions ourselves. We don't have to rely on anyone else. There's no warehouse financing against it. There's no term up on something else. There's no mismatch between the assets and liabilities. Maybe that was just luck. But whatever it is, my point is, if you, have a, if you can be well-intentioned, which I believe pretty much everyone I know is in this business, but you have a poor capital structure, you are now not going to be able to be as good a partner to Jake as you would otherwise be. Right. And we're going to see a bunch of that. I want to go back to, you're at Cornell Hotel School. Why aren't you now buying hotels, investing in hotels? Why did you decide to go into essentially CMBS originations? And also, what do you think that you learned during that period that you're still using today? So, you know, when you're contemplating your career coming out of university, you know, you certainly have passions for certain things. I know you've got a lot of passions in sort of the design, the development. I mean, you're deeply ingrained in who you are. And that's been a great path for you, you know? I think for me, it was a little bit as a foreigner, a need to get a good seat. <laughs> and maybe Jack Cordial, my professor, was right. to blame for saying to me, look at, I was in his class and he says, you're, you're very well suited to this, go, go and do this. And I said, as a lender, that's a bit boring, isn't it? <laughs> a bit pedestrian. But it was so dynamic, the business at the time, you know? And I got this great opportunity there to go and step into this, funnel of deal flow 
from sort of 7 a.m. until midnight every night, sit in the bullpen from 8 until midnight drinking beers with my analysts and associates, trying to figure out deals. That's what we did for, for years, literally, right? And whether it was making loans or anything else, it was the, the experience of doing that that was so impactful. So my path was sort of predefined at that time. I still have aspirations of owning a nice beachside hotel for myself and having the owner's table and sitting out there interest and talking to interesting people. I love the hotel business. I really do. I'm deeply passionate about what it. What about the hotel business do you love? I love the people. It's dynamic. I love the people. A hotel, as an example, as you well know, is the most well-rounded business. If you think about it, right? A hotel's got human resources. It's got a bunch of people. It's got accounting. It's got multiple revenue streams. It's got intense expense management. It's got leverage. It's got every aspect of a business. So if you learn how to run a hotel properly, I think you can run almost any business. And the other point that I've always used is that we, whether I'm a financier or you're a hotelier, it's about giving people a good experience. So we've always, we have been one of the largest hotel lenders in the country year in, year out for many years, particularly when markets are bad because it's a good time to be a lender. You don't want to be lending at the peak valuations. Unfortunately, we stayed away from a lot of stuff like New York City and, and other places like that in the hospitality sector where I didn't believe there was good value anymore as a lender. And we were lucky, again, made good decisions, deliberate and a bit of luck. But at the same time, when we talk to our borrowers, I've always led with where it's about customer service. My money is the same as our, our competitors' money. I can provide you with a higher quality experience. And that's what we're after. So when you think about building a business, you've got to provide something to the client that is better, whether it's price, experience, or something as an entrepreneur to differentiate yourself. And I think that hospitality experience at Cornell and Switzerland and working in hotels taught me to be very focused on giving white glove service. And we do that through our asset management team. So the Cornell experience, the working in hotels in Dorchester and, and in Zurich at the Borlach in Geneva, those were great experiences. I don't want to repeat those experiences, but I learned a lot from them that have translated into the way in which, through my eyes, I believe in building ACOR. Customer first, risk management, and you put the two together, you're going to result in some good outcomes. In business, what I've found is that relationships are really everything. And you want to reduce the amount of variables that you have in your everyday life. And one of them would be meeting 10 new lenders each day and having 10 different lenders that you're working with. You really want to deal with someone where I know I can go to this guy with a loan. We're going to have a good relationship. And then I can do this with someone else. And that's going to be positive. It's the reason why you moved from California to Florida, because you didn't want to deal with a variable that you wouldn't know was coming. When you went to start Acor, how intentioned were you about maybe not wanting to go public, not wanting to necessarily use warehouse lines, not wanting to sell your assets like a CMBS lender, developing an asset management platform? How much of that was part of the process where you were kind of writing the business plan for Acor? Mm, a good question. So you know, after having built these businesses coming out of Starwood, which was a fantastic experience by and large, and we learned a lot through the process, we sat down as partners and said, well, what do we really want to do? And there was divergent opinions among us, right? Absolute divergent opinions. But the one commonality was if we decide we're going to go and do this, it has to be scaled. Effectively build a business that is durable, scalable, 
and potentially dominant in terms of the approach. Having two, three hundred million dollars as a lender and two people in a Bloomberg or three billion, it's not, it's a hobby. It's not a business. Okay. It served some people well, but it's not my cup of tea. So, you know, with that intent and an opportunity in the market driven by Basel three, we said, if we're going to do this, it needs to really be off scale, but now you need capital to match that. Right. And we were fortunate. We knew we did not want to do CMBS. Okay. CMBS is one of these businesses that people have made a lot of money, lose a lot of money, make a lot of money, lose a lot of money because the variability, the inability to hedge correctly during certain times in the market. Today, you need to be a BP's buyer. At the same time, you're an originator yep. to eliminate risk. And we just didn't feel like that was a good business. It can be a really good return on equity business, but it wasn't what we wanted to do. We really liked what we did at Starwood Property Trust, which is we're a transitional lender. So when you're building a hotel, when you're ramping up your hotel, apartment building, office building, retail, self-storage, RV box, whatever it is, we, our job is to make the best risk-adjusted return loans that we can. So there's not a rule book that is telling us what to do. In CMBS, you've got the agencies, you've got the BP spies telling you what to do, and you're generating fodder for this machine. That's what you're doing. I just, for me personally, I don't find that to be what I want to do and all my partners. So we said, listen, we're good at this thing, making loans. We've got great relationships. We like these assets because we can really underwrite the borrower and we can really underwrite the asset. Our average loan size is $80 million. I'd like it to be bigger, but it's 80 million bucks. Why would you like to be bigger? The bigger the loan, well, firstly, you make money on dollar per invested, so that's helpful. But secondly, the quality of the borrowers by and large on larger deals, I'm saying 30 million plus, is more definable. The danger when you're doing smaller loans that are transitional is you oftentimes have the country cup syndicate or you have the doctors and lawyers in there. And the problem with that is if there's a problem, it's very difficult for a sponsor to go and generate consensus in that group of people who are like, hey, you know, Jimmy, I, you told me I was going to put in 25 grand and now it's another 25 grand, but I don't have another 25 grand for you. you know? <laughs> so it creates problems. Now you as a lender, I don't want that headache. I don't want to take back your property. So our borrowers are local operating partners like yourself, the best in class, partnered together with the biggest sources of capital, right? Whether those opportunity funds, pension funds, other folks that are saying to you, Jake, we are the money partner. You're the guy that makes it happen. But you're, you are geographically a master at what you're doing. You know your markets perfectly. And I describe that as the best local or regional operating partner. The real estate is top quartile real estate. The borrower is top quartile borrower. And then I'm able to extract alpha in the loan by offering you great customer service, a very stable balance sheet, huge asset management team, and I become your finance partner. I never want to compete with you. So Acor doesn't have an equity fund, nor are we going to have an equity. So we have everything from our lower leverage 60% loan to value loans all the way through preferred equity. For example, we did a very large preferred equity investment during COVID. We raised a billion dollar vehicle to provide bridge capital to the hospitality industry. This was, back to your earlier point, a time when it wasn't a credit problem. This was you owned a bunch of hotels and you had no revenue. We've yeah. never in our history seen that before. No revenue. You have to pay all the expenses. You got to pay your debt service, your insurance, your taxes, your security costs, your general management. It was just bleeding borrowers out. And so what we said is, listen, this is a liquidity problem. This will come back. These good assets will come back. The demand will come back. 
in sort of and painting a picture, we knew leisure demand was going to come back and be strong. We knew group demand should be pretty good. We were concerned about business travel, which this is basically all of our playbooks, right? And we leaned in. We made a two hundred million dollar preferred equity investment, but it's not really preferred equity. It's really the attachment points of sort of in the middle of the stack. So it's very very safe, and it's a phenomenal operator, phenomenal business plan, and it's across thirty six assets. Okay, but we were able there to price the capital in a way that was higher yield in a time where there was no liquidity. So we really did our borrower a good service and we did our investors a good service, but we're not competing with our borrowers in any way. So I think if you take those formulas and you put it together, that's really why we decided to stick with the nucleus of what we do. And now looking forward, as we well know, two and a half trillion dollars of debt coming due. A lot of that's going to be floating rate bridge kind of money, and we can operate at the very safe first mortgage, mezzanine, and preferred equity sector, and just be your partner. That's the goal. I've heard, I don't know, in the past two weeks of some lenders that a big part of their business plan is actually to take over properties. And you just mentioned that's not at all part of your business plan. We did some PREF deals during COVID where we lent others, not lent, but we invested PREF. And we did not at all want to take over. We knew we could if we had to, but we didn't want to do it. That wasn't the goal. That wasn't the fun. Talk to me about why that's important for you long-term. I want to be, if you look at our vision, our stated vision is we want to be the financier to the commercial real estate industry. Meaning I simply want the first phone call from you to say, Warren, I'm doing this project. What do you think? We'll fly, drive, whatever we do to come sit with you, come walk the project and say, this is how we can be helpful in the context of a financial partner. While I have a lot of asset managers, the idea of taking back assets, we are well positioned to do it, but it isn't my business plan. We don't need to do it. It's not in our DNA necessarily. We can and we will if we have to, but we have 450 borrowers that we're actively lending money to. We have 70 borrowers currently that have three or more loans with us. That's a partnership. That's a financier partnership with you, the entrepreneur partnership. That's not a me wanting to game you and take back one of your assets relationship. Okay. It might happen circumstantial, but if it happens, you and I are going to sit down and have this conversation. I'm like, we're both out of ideas. Listen, we're going to take it back. And that was the deal we entered into. So if you're taking an asset back, are you doing it when essentially the borrower's like, I'll give it back to you? Mm -hmm. Is that how you're operating in most cases? Are you kind of exhausting all options? And how do you even determine when to take something back? It's usually driven by the borrower, okay. right? I mean, again, my job is just to collect interest and, and principal. It's our job, right? And to be a good partner to you. The moment that that stops, that relationship between me and you changes that you stop paying us. Now I have a fiduciary to protect my principal and interest. Now we kick into a slightly different relationship, which is we can be great friends, but the deal we entered into was you pay me my principal and interest. Oh, by the way, and if you decide not to just give me the keys, that's the relationship we entered into, provided there's no recourse relationship there, right? We understand that very well. So the assets that we've taken back, during COVID, we only took back three assets. That's it, three. We will take back more, don't get me wrong, but it's really driven by the borrower. And some borrowers, in fairness to them, 
they've exhausted their economic interest. And as a fiduciary, they should give us the keys back. But the minute you can actually sit in a room in a calm way and have that discussion, it results in better outcomes. It doesn't always work that way. Trust me. You know, there's some kicking and screaming that goes on. But fundamentally, you know, when I look at this, and and this wasn't your question, but I would comment on this. The world is a very small world of financiers who are the material players in this sector. The world is getting smaller in terms of that pool of people. We all talk. We just know each other. We're friends. Of course. The way in which you as a borrower behave is critical. Meaning, you, it's fine for you to negotiate your position and, and fight for a good deal for you. It's 100% fine. But there are lines that you don't want to cross. The minute you cross those lines, the world becomes smaller for you. Next go around, you're like, hey, you know, whether it's a line lender or otherwise, you go, oh, yeah, that guy or that girl, we didn't have a good experience with them last time around. It's suddenly a red line. So my advice to borrowers and friends, and it's really that, that a lot of these borrowers are friends of ours, and some will seek advice and others will just not. But those that seek advice, I encourage them to have a long-term view, which is, listen, you're going to be developing or doing this for the next 30 years. This is sort of out of your control, man. This is like six generational problems in our market today, all in the last 18 months. We've never seen this during our careers. This is not really your fault. You're a good operator, good borrower. Now, don't mess it up in the last quarter mile. You know what I mean? Just do things in the correct way. That doesn't mean you have to roll over. It just means be cognizant of your future because liquidity for you is the whole game for you going forward. As you were scaling Acor, what was the most challenging component when you think about you know, people, capital, deal flow, I don't know, something else? What, what is the hardest thing about scaling your business? Look, we're still scaling Acor. You know, my vision or our vision is to be a $100 billion asset manager. We absolutely can. So we're still in the early, early stages of the growth of the company and the market opportunity is there. What I would say to you is, When you start a company, you have ideas, you have a business plan, you have base capital, you basically rent office space, you go and find your garbage cans, you get a telephone service, you do a little marketing here and there, right? And you start building the base base of a business. You also then have to hire a bunch of people into the company day one. And you're sort of in a semi-panic. Oh, good resume. Come on in. I'll just jump in. Here I go. About two or three years ago, I took over as co-CEO with Chris and our stated sort of vision for that year was the institutionalization of Acor, Acor 2.0. Same overall vision, different tactics in order to move the company to its next level. Think about it as a teenager. You know, you're going through your teenager years. Stuff's weird. You have got hair on your face, you know, yep. like hair on your I'm like, stuff's weird, you know. It's the same thing in a business. And so there are people that fit phase one really well. There's people in phase two that were in phase one that don't fit anymore. And then there's going to be a phase three, four, and five. I think the difficult decisions need to be made as you evolve through your company. Really difficult decisions because these people are your best friends. These people have been with you from day one. But I think as a leader, you have to be able to make the decisions that are the hard decisions as you evolve through your company. So I wouldn't say my most difficult decisions are behind me at this point or us as a company. I think they're a constant as we go forward into phase three, four, and five. 
that could be capital raising, that could be origination, that could be leadership, that could be asset management. And I think you have to have the presence of mind to continually evaluate, including yourself, how you're doing individually and as a company. I mean, what we've done recently, that's a new thing for us, is we had an offsite recently in Palm Beach and the senior management team was there and we had made a couple of mistakes on hiring. And one of the questions I asked the team is I said, how is it that we made a mistake with this person and this person? Two, in like the last six months. We all interviewed the people. I would tell you, I'm not as good as an interviewer as some of my partners. I really am. And, but I've recognized that, you know? So now the question is, how do I become a better interviewer? Because I didn't see that coming around the corner, but I'm not sure they did either. And so we are now implementing certain protocols to test personality, IQ. Does that, is that the final say on whether you're hire somebody? Absolutely not, but it's inputs into a system. I'm a huge fan of, uh, you know, I think Albert Einstein said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes the solution. It's really true, right? I mean, when you think about it, the problem with today's day and age is we have these iPhones and iPads and noise, and there's so much noise going on around us that we have no time to think. The ability to try and teach yourself to think is really complex, really complex. Now try and teach the people who work for you to go think. And what does that mean? So as we've come through different phases here, for me personally, I think the idea of reading obsessively is really important. Talking to people, but explicitly talking to people who you care about talking to is very important. Figuring out when you have a face with a problem, what is the question you're trying to solve? So we'll get on investment committee and certain people will ask a hundred random questions. I'll call them afterwards and say, what do you, there should only be five questions you can ask to solve any problem, right? What are those five questions? Next time around, think of the five questions. Don't ask random BS questions because that's just you motor mouthing. Don't do it. So identifying the question. So as we're evolving as a company, the institutionalization of the company, less time, more productivity, more output, the time you spend with people talking to people needs to be effective and impactful. So if someone's going to walk in my office, if they haven't determined what they're trying to solve and be able to frame it to me and ask the questions, then they're just simply wasting my time or wasting your time. Send them out, rinse and repeat. So in this evolution of the company, we're really evolving to a lot of this thought leadership, transfer of knowledge. What is the question we're trying to solve as a company? What's the question we're trying to solve as individuals, family-wise? that office work from home question, moving to Miami question, all of these were real big questions that I was asking. And ultimately these were the outcomes, right? But a lot of questions were asked in the mean, in, in, in the interim. So your backgrounds in hospitality for those hires that didn't end up being the right fit for Acor, do you think that was because you were too accommodating or you fantasized the role and those folks perhaps lack some critical thinking. Maybe they were a good people person, but they didn't have the critical component that is really key in your world. Mm. So again, I like to put things in sort of categories. I think the, the best performers at Acor have a healthy dose of IQ and a healthy dose of EQ. And you have to effectively on the IQ side test it. Because without a test, you can BS me about your IQ, right? So we've moved more to a testing protocol around the IQ. The EQ is a complicated thing, right? But 
in the past, we've had people at Acor that are tremendously EQ people, are wonderful, you know, communicators. But we are very much about analysis, math, presentation to drive credibility. And so generally, I'd say we've fallen short in either one of those categories. It's usually the IQ side, right, that we've fallen short of. But I don't know, ask you the question when you're hiring people. What stands out for you as the most important? How do you successfully hire? It depends what you're hiring for. So if we're hiring for an investment position, what's really key for me is work ethic and critical thinking and just understanding their ability to understand what the big picture is and what we're solving for. So I think there's a lot of similarities to the five questions that you really wanted this person to ask what I look for in a great person. I also am very caught because we have a small team of who I want to be around. Mm. Is this a person that I want to speak to mm. every day? Because I probably will speak them to them every day, even if they're an analyst. Like I'm in, I'm around, I'm talking to them about their personal life and what they're working on. And I'll go to them for little side projects. That is very important because a lot of the technical stuff can be trained but it's also how quickly then can they take what you teach them and then apply that to a live deal? What are the five questions that you are really looking at in these deals that you're doing? Because so much when you start to get really big like you, you have to like PhDize everything and like get so intellectual and smart. And I read all these reports, and I'm like, I don't know. What the fuck does that mean? Like, what are you doing? Like, people are looking for you as to what are you doing, do during these times? And now you're the guy. What are the five questions that you're asking when these deals are coming through loan committee, not during this period, but in any period? I mean, the first question is what changes the credit from a good credit to a bad credit? And then from there, your five questions will, will come. So don't forget, our job is to return principal and interest to our investors. So the number one question is what would change that? Right? So what would change that? And then from that will flow the other questions. Now, we, there can be variability around the outcome, obviously. I mean, I can't pin your, your ADR and occupancy, although we think we can. I'm just kidding. We can't. <laughs> then, no, but, but you know, you can look at data and kind of figure out what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Same thing on a condo development. You kind of know what this thing should f- sell for per square foot. Yeah. So then the questions are, what will change the outcome? In a, in a way that's negative for us. I mean, obviously the upside is the upside. I mean, that's interesting to talk about for two and a half seconds, but I really want to talk about the downside. And that can be the fact that your basis is too high, right? And you're a little too optimistic around your assumptions on, on the basis. It could be that your business plan is somewhat flawed in terms of the execution. I mean, execution is everything in our business. Don't forget that, right? So when you borrow money from us, the decision you're making as a developer is, I am going to get this executed. Now I just need a capital partner. What I'm saying is, will he get it executed? Or what will stand in the way of the execution? So we have a construction management team, right? We have 10 people in construction managers. All they've ever done in their entire life is run construction projects on the equity side, consultants, debt, whatever. And that's been a key to our success. We have an incredibly deep bench there. Like if you came down to Dallas and sat down there with your whole team, we would match up everyone in your team against my team and say, how are we doing? And you would walk out there going, I think, and say, wow, I think we have a partner here. And that's my job, is to provide that to the borrowing community. So 
The five questions, really, it starts with what would change the outcome, the basis, the borrower, the business plan, the market. What we're faced with right now is a, is a, is a different series of questions too than when the market was on an uptick, right? I mean, the headwinds, the natural headwinds, things that are concerning to us right now, the health of the consumer, the health of corporate earnings, which is often not talked about. Pre-COVID, the average household had $400 in savings. During COVID, we peaked, generational peak of savings, 2,400 bucks. Where are we now? It's dwindling. I can't tell you what, where we are, but it's dwindling rapidly. The whole idea of inflation being at headline inflation of 5%, if you go into the streets and ask anybody how high they feel inflation is, they'll tell you 10% per year. You know, anything is inflated, right? Cost of milk, gas, anything is way higher than what it was a year ago. And the number's more like 10%. So that's going to impact the consumer. That's discretionary spending, that's savings, that's hotels, that's retail, that's all of the above. On the corporate side, I've encouraged my team to focus on corporate earnings as directional measures. So I'm not a rocket science, but scientist, but if we've got supply chain issues, you're not able to drive revenues in the same way. I'm just talking about a corporation, public company that's manufacturing widgets, right? You can't drive it the same way because you can't, for one reason or another, get what you need from China or wherever else. Cost of goods sold has gone up because raw materials and otherwise have skyrocketed. Then you have the labor impact, so your margins have been squeezed. Then in certain states, you've got overzealous tax folks, right? Take the state of Illinois. I mean, no one can underwrite taxes right. in Illinois because they just don't know what it is, or what it's going to be. And now you borrow money. Your cost of debt has doubled. So I'm, again, not a math genius, but simply that means all those numbers are going down. The only way you can sustain uh, your earnings is to cut costs, discretionary costs and otherwise. So I don't see how this actually, those macros have to play a role in these markets. Another interesting example is take a city like Nashville that's experienced a tremendous amount of growth in the multifamily sector. They've, tr they've experienced a tremendous amount of growth for all the good reasons, right? Low cost of labor, uh, low taxation state, things like that. Great fun place to be, good quality of life and so on. Geographically well-located, good airport, et cetera, et cetera. Good infrastructure, actually. If you're looking at a new multifamily project there and you've got 5,000 units coming online, I think like 30% in the next two or three years, how do you underwrite that risk? That's not something we've had, had to experience in the last few years, right? All we've seen is increased in demand. But is that going to perpetuate with these headwinds? I can't tell you I know that answer. Someone that you and I both know very well, we were looking at a hotel deal in Nashville and he said, watch out for the supply. So when you're faced with a market like Nashville, where if you've been there, the city's beautiful, there's so much going on, there's great education, the people are smiling. When you're faced with having to deploy capital, which you do, that's your job, do you deploy capital there or do you deploy capital in San Francisco where I don't know if there's a way to get out of that hole in the next 10 years? So I don't think we're ready to invest in, in San Francisco. I think governance-wise, structurally speaking, homelessness, crime, the list goes on. There's too much volatility in San Francisco. There will come a time that as a lender, once the rebasis completely resets, that we will come in and be a material lender there in New York City. Today, it's not the right time for us. So Nashville, hotels, why would we lend? And yes, there is a supply issue there. 
one has to be cautious. It's about the basis in the assets. So if you walk in and say to me, Warren, I want a 60% loan. I'm going to put 40% cash in here, economically incented. You have a great business plan. We can go through a business plan where you're showing me your marketing mix and how you're going to change management and clip a bunch of this business demand here is, is, is over index or under indexing. It should be indexing flat or over indexing based on your experience and expertise. I'll buy into that. And then I back into your basis per key and I look at it on a histor historical basis and relative to anything else. I would bet Nashville long term all day long, which we have. Like we have well over a billion dollars invested in Nashville, right? Across all product types. And it served us well. We also know a lot of the key players in Nashville, right? And that's another thing that's great about my seat in, at Acor is we get to see everybody's business plans and we get to finance all the major players. Yep. So if you're going to finance the hotel across the street, we'll look at all the data we have on the deal on the other side of the street and we can extrapolate some decent conclusions. But, you know, the look, New York City is challenged. Office in New York City is extremely challenged. Hotels have been challenged for various reasons for many years. But I think we'll come back in there in a material way when it resets. We made a PREF investment in New York City during COVID, and that thing is ripping. It's in Chelsea. It's the Marriott Courtyard Hotel. We've returned a third of our capital already, but some hotels are just, the structure doesn't work. The infrastructure doesn't work. It's not going to make sense. I want to transition now to the business of Acor because it's really fascinating. Like, How do you make money? How does this business work? You have a insurance company investor. You have some other high net worth investors. I think you have another insurance company. Like, how do you make money? So the way we make money is we secure these investors that have an interest in making a yield, a cash on cash return that is in today's markets higher than equity returns. So you're taking, they're taking debt light risk and making equity like returns. So it's a very attractive time for people to be in credit. Okay. But historically, this is a people that are matching. They want to invest in loans. So it generates a stable income stream that it matches the liabilities that they need to pay out plus a profit effectively, uh, you know, spread lending. And there's lots of folks around the world that are looking for that kind of return profile, right? It was funny, you know, a year ago, you're talking to some of these people who invest in private equity and their portfolios are 50%. And we show up and we say, we're going to make you 12 or 11 or 13 net returns. And look at us like, ah, come back, you know. Yeah, they laughed at you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now it's a different story. Yeah. You know, those mark to markets are not looking so good anymore. And those are all residual based returns. And ours are just monthly cash on cash returns. So all our returns are coming from income. They're not coming from residual. So there's this universe of investors, whether it's insurance companies, uh, it, it could be, you know, pension funds, endowments, and so on that, are, that need to cover their liabilities. They look at this asset class and they say, I need to be exposed to it. And by the way, this non-bank sector continues to grow in profile, so there's more folks looking at it as an alternative. So we'll charge base management fees by and large on invested capital, and then on some of the accounts, we'll get a carried interest, so a promote. The difference between our promote and an equity promote is we have a high probability of getting up, a really high probability of getting up, because it's a debt product, right? So you know how easily you can blow out of your promote on the equity side. For us, I'm making a loan. As long as it pays, I'm going to get my promote. So we're able to generate incentive fees, promote carried interest, however you want to describe it, that are pretty well insulated from downturns. And we, we have paid base management fees. So that's the business model. So based on that, scale then is definitely key because you essentially know what your profit's going to be on the carry or on the promote 
from day one if the loan performs. And then you need to get the scale because you have to turn your asset management fees into a profitable venture so that you can bank on that income as well. Yeah, totally. And and don't forget, I think, like I said earlier on, if you've got a couple hundred million bucks, it's a hobby, right? Generally speaking, the fee structures in debt are lower than equity. Right. So you had a home run, you make a fortune. It's great. Go buy your next Ferrari. It's awesome. We were slow and steady. I mean, our business is slow and steady, but you do need scale. So my earlier point about my partners and I, when we decided to start Acor was it has to be scalable. Otherwise, it's just not that interesting. Also, intellectually, it's less interesting. You know, what's really intellectually interesting is seeing everybody's deals and choosing the ones that we want to pursue hard. And then we're able to boil that down to the best risk-adjusted returns and generate great returns for our investors, but with great borrowers and great projects. And that's the art in what we do. But you do need a scaled business, and that's expensive to do. So there are there is a big moat around our business. You know, effectively, it's difficult to launch a business like this. You need a large commitment of capital so that you're always in the market, you know, providing liquidity to borrowers. And secondly, you need to hire a bunch of people. <laughs> These people are not free. So it is an expensive business to build. It's an expensive business to run. And then it's very difficult to compete as a new entrant, right? Because we've created a brand where borrowers know us. As I said, 400 some active borrowers with us, 70 borrowers with three or more loans. They're going to give us deference. So if you are a new entrant who wants to win the business, you have to undercut us fairly significantly in price. Well, there's not a huge margin in the business, okay? You're operating with fairly thin margins. So you start undercutting yourself, you're going to be out of business pretty fast. So you're leaning in on relationships, creating moments for people so that I'm only calling Warren. I'm like, I'm going to tell Warren that I'm calling someone else, but I'm, you're really my only call. You might call two or three people, but your intent is to go with us. Always. Keep yeah. us honest. It's fine. But the, also then the second part of that that grew out of this was our opportunistic credit vehicle, which is a high yielding vehicle. All right. So our opportunistic credit vehicle is higher teens returns. And this comes out of a situation where you might call me and say, shit, I have a problem. I need to close in two weeks or I need a little extra leverage or I've got a problem here or I got this weird structure. Can you get around it? I'm willing to pay you more for it and I'm going to make a home run. So I'm willing to pay you more. What's and are you still holding that on your balance sheet or are you it's, selling it's that off the, too? all on the balance sheet. Okay. So right now, all my investors are equity investors. They like high teens returns. Those are the people that I know. I don't know the Japanese insurance companies that you know that are cool with earning you know 5% or whatever they want. We are now seeing a tremendous amount of deal flow on the credit side and on the preferred equity side because we know how to underwrite deals. Like all we do is hotels. We know which ones work and which ones don't work. What opportunities do you think exist for sponsors and operators like us to partner with people like you, maybe raise a fund, but I don't, again, I don't have the contacts. So I think the biggest opportunity is going to be in multiple sectors, including hospitality. But let's take multifamily, for example, enormous asset class. Multifamily, the biggest problem with multifamily were borrowers that borrowed, at, you know, I mean, bought assets at three caps, three and a half caps. The, their rental income hasn't grown in sufficiently enough. And now they need to refinance. Okay, now their loan is 90% loan to value. It's a good asset. It's a yep. really good asset. You just yep. bought it at the wrong price. Great sponsor. We will provide a tremendous, I bet in 2024, we'll at least a billion, two billion of bridge. MES, you know, call it 13 to 15% yield, 
going from 60% to 90% of today's capital structure. Historically, that would have been like 45 to 65 of the capital structure. Great asset. It's going to get there. It's just a matter of time. Demographically, directionally correct asset. Great borrow, great, great market. We're going to do tons of it. And are you doing that in PREF or in a new loan because my loan's maturing and I need you to fill in the gap? Both. It'll be every way, shape, or form of the capital structure. It'll be PREF behind agencies. It'll be a bank loan that's coming due and they need to pay it down. We'll do the pay down capital. It could be us just doing the whole structure. Hospitality, you're going to experience the same thing. I think I really believe that. Now, if I was you, clearly, and I'm sure you're doing this already, is developing the right narrative with lenders. The problem for lenders like ourselves are that we get calls six times a week. Hey, Warren, haven't talked to you for 63 years. How are you doing? (laughs) Anyway, you got any loans to sell me, right? You can imagine. I think the key for sponsors like yourself is a couple of fold. One is you need to be a friendly counterpart. So to the extent that there is a borrower of capital and you're coming in, you're going to be viewed as a bad thing, that borrower, because you're competitive. Your intent needs to be pure. If your intent is to come in as a preferred equity person because you're looking for the yield, you don't want to scare the crap out of this borrower. That's what's difficult about the position. Or you could take the position that you are going to be predatory and you're going to foreclose, but you have to define what your stripes are coming into this equation. In my experience doing these PREF deals, I want to do small amount of work possible on an ongoing basis and earn the highest return. So that would be not being predatory. So I want to pick the right investment, make a good investment, basically asset manage that through the life, but not have to take over. Your other opportunity that is very real. So coming back to that extent, loan extension question, remember? Folks like ourselves, and I can speak for a number of our competitors too, we don't really want to foreclose on the assets, okay? But to the extent we do, we're going to look around for partners that we believe are masters of their markets. Again, the strong local regional operating partner that when you talk to them, they really know everything about the market. Secondly, you need to put a few bucks into the deal. When we foreclose on it, we're going to flip it to you is what's going to happen. We will then lend you money. We'll have a performing loan. But we know that your business plan is under is underwritable as if it's a new loan going forward. And we will, it's our highest probability of getting our principal and interest back. And I can't wait for you to make multiples on your money. And we'll make you a loan, maybe a high octane loan, I mean, a, a high leverage loan, maybe a low interest rate loan with the intent of you executing the plan. Don't forget, particularly hotels, it's an operating business. Your unique, your superpower is executing operationally to capital sources like us. So being chill, coming in early, doing some initial underwriting, being thoughtful, not saying, oh, can I buy your loan at a discount? I mean, I get buy, you know, but coming in and, and being a partner to the lenders, you'll get more than your fair share of opportunity in that construct. But you have to come to table with some money. But I can tell you to a T, every one of my lending friends that are in the same position as, as what we are at ACOR would strongly encourage that and also more than happy for you to make a bunch of money. So your opportunity set is very big, particularly given that you're focused on certain markets, you have a superpower and defining your superpower is a really important thing. I love that because I have the equity and now you're coming to me, you're saying, hey, I might have this deal and I'm going to finance it. That means I can just focus on what I actually know, which is yeah. operating the business and crushing it and paying you interest. Exactly. We don't want to take it back. We don't want a non-performing loan necessarily, but there comes a time where we're done, where we need to bring in somebody who can execute properly. But you've got to come in with some money and you've got to put in some some legwork up front. But if you do that correctly, 
I can guarantee you, you're going to make a fortune in the next cycle. Okay. So for your business, for Acor, I don't know, maybe you can give me some insider secrets on what you talked about at Palm Beach. By the way, where were you staying? Were you at the Breakers or? The Four Seasons. We financed the Four Seasons there. So okay. That's a beautiful hotel. Yeah. So you were there. Ken Griffin, I guess, is out at this he point. Was, but he did pay rent. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. What did you think about for the vision of Acor and how lending and your business will evolve over the next five years? Look, if, we, if the basic vision is that we want to be perceived as the go-to financier to the commercial real estate industry, we have our hands full for the next 100 years, literally. That is a very lofty objective. But the basics of what that means is, is that there's trust involved. We are great fiduciaries. We're always in the market with capital. And not only can we just provide capital, but when you have a problem, we can act as a conciliary on the finance side for you. We can provide you with good information. But that sort of circle of giving, if you will, gets bigger and bigger, particularly in markets like this, right? Where we're going to have an issue, your behavior with us is really important. Our behavior with you, you is really important. So that relationship, which you referred to earlier on, like everything is about relationships and then execution, is even more important in markets like this, okay? Where you might have a bad, bad luck on something. Watch your behavior so that you don't come across to the lenders as being, you know, somebody who's unreasonable, a little loose cannon or otherwise, because you've got a long life here. So our vision just is the same. We've got to keep just building off of what we've built. Our platform is really well positioned. Our capital structure, our, our, our structure of our capital is great. 120 people in five offices is great. What we represent to the borrowing community is really good. We just need to continue to absorb more capital so that we can put capital to borrowers like you in a greater way across the capital structure. So what asset classes are you staying away from and what ideas or business plans are you saying, God, I hope this guy just walks through my door with this thing because I want to loan a ton of money to it. So the first part, I mean, clearly the office thing is complex, but it's not complex in every market in the country. We just did a ground up office building in West Palm Beach. Um, lucky, great, phenomenal borrower, best market in the country. So we're not redlining markets and we're not redlining asset types because we're a lender, right? My basis, I can just drop my loan to value to a level that I'm more comfortable. Mid-block New York City office, generic, low ceiling heights, we won't touch with a barge ball, nor will anyone else basically, right? They got a real structural problem, right? Real structural problem. So if we were going to redline something, it would be that. Downtown Los Angeles office, a nightmare. San Francisco downtown, a nightmare. Chicago, a nightmare. It's a really sa it's sad for me to say that. And I'd never bet against the biggest cities in the United States, but we need some real governance changes in order to have people to have confidence to come back and live a great life and coexist in the office sector. Well said. Yes. And you can get me going on that. It'll be another two hours. Hotels we're cautious on clearly because of the direction of the consumer, the direction of corporate earnings. We have to be. But there are markets like here, for example, and you could speak to, 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 to Delmar and the performance there, I'm sure it's just killing it, you know, certain assets in Miami that are just killing it, like amazing returns. So I think these markets that are attracting people are attracting people for a good reason. And so those are good bets, right? I let, lean into those kind of bets. We're doing a lot of self-storage. We're doing an inordinate amount of multifamily. Why multifamily? While we've seen a decline in growth in rentals on pretty much most of the 28 or 40 top markets in the United States over the last three months, that is worrisome. However, with interest rates high, with savings low, the consumer can't buy a house anymore. So they've been priced out. 
their only other alternative is to rent. So they're gonna move into the rental market. So if you look at the PL of a rental building, so we understand the revenues, the demand is there. The cost structure, you know, you're running 30, 35% expense margins on multifamily, meaning that you're less susceptible to the impacts of inflation, meaning those assets are more durable. You might get some volatility in the income streams, but more durable. And then thirdly, you have liquidity in the form of the agencies, Freddie and Fannie. So from an asset and investment perspective, directionally, we'll keep loading the boat with multifamily. Industrial, it's a bit of a cliche, but not in all industrials made equal. But we are doing a tremendous amount of industrial right now that we wouldn't have done pre-pandemic. We would have been priced out of it because the banks would have done it. Because of the retrenchment in banks, we're making exceptionally good returns on industrial buildings with the best sponsors. So that's the safe zone. Self-storage, safe zone, right? Then you, from there, you start trickling out into the other sectors and they become more risky on the far right-hand side of that spectrum would be office. It's about frames what we're doing. I ask all the guests on the show for the closing question, what is your favorite hotel? You've been to some amazing hotels, so I can't wait for this answer. What is your favorite hotel? In the US, I'd say the Four Seasons Surf Club. We were fortunate enough to finance it. And I think that Nadim and his team did an amazing job. What's outstanding to me about that asset is the sort of juxtaposition of the architecture, you know, which is just incredible. And then the execution of that, the interior decor, that juxtaposition of those experiences and then the food and beverage programming, I think he crushed it. Crushed it. Crushed it. So and by the way, when you did that loan, he wasn't crushing it, I don't think, as much as he is now. Yeah. And you can't get a the crappiest room for $3,000. And there's no crappy room, but $3,000 a night. I think it has the best restaurant in town. And actually, in my opinion, it's also the best place for a breakfast meeting. Sitting out on that terrace is you feel like you're in Europe or somewhere else. It is a phenomenal asset and great hotel. Well, I'm glad we we share that. And uh, you know, it's some, you know, we, we're proud of the assets we do. I, I would have to put in the same category, though, uh, the Casa Cipriani Hotel in New York City. Have you been there yet? Yes. Do you have the debt there? Yeah, we do. It's phenomenal. So another execution where you look at it, and I would say that the combination of Cipriani and the Carey family they executed on a product there, the hotel product that is gorgeous. Henrik, who's the general manager there, does an incredible job of connecting with his guests at a very pure way. Back to hospitality, right? Yep. So we are in the hospitality business, regardless of what you do. And he connects in a beautiful way. The physical plant, the club, they've executed perfectly. The gym is a big boy gym. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Then I have a cryo machine there. Not that I want to go in the cryo machine. I'm too nervous. But but I look at those assets, those two in particular, and I like to talk to our investors about them too. I like to talk to our employees about them because our employees were a big part of the success of those assets, you know, particularly when there was big construction involved, like there was particularly at Casa Cipriani. And for us to say we were a part of it as a lender, we are with their finance partners through thick and thin with the problems and not. And now look at the execution. And so that's what Acor wants to be, really. We want to be the partner to, our, to, to, to you guys to create great things. So a little story. I went to Casa Cipriani probably early on when it first opened. We went and had dinner there with a group of us. And I remember coming back and I told a friend, like, I just went to this most amazing place. You're in New York and you feel like you're somewhere else. We had dinner in the beautiful dining room and then we're sitting out on the patio and the design is a 10. It's really transformative. And he's like, yeah, but it's all the way downtown and no one wants to go there and it's in the middle of nowhere. 
I'm telling you, you have to see this thing. It's unbelievable. Fast forward to today. It's probably the hottest member club in New York City. It's the place to go in the winter, in the summer, and it takes vision and execution from a team to be able to see that. And partnership because clearly there's definitely going to be challenges along the way to make something great. I mean, look, you've lived this right in person, whether it would be something like that or Del Mar or any of the other assets you've developed, you know, you're just going to take the white space in the box and you're creating your vision. That is really what I wanted to be (laughs) when I went into lending. (laughs) Well, now you're going to do it with a lot less risk, which is pretty cool. (laughs) It's fun because you live through the fun parts and then don't have to deal with the negative parts, I like guess. also managing the GM and. Well, I figure I, I figure if we ever took one of these assets back, you know, I'm very good in the kitchen. I'm a very good pot washer, and I'm a hell of a good doorman. Well, I'm actually on your first hotel on the beach. I'll happily loan you the money, <laughs> and you could be the equity, and we'll trade places. We'll for see one what deal. happens. <laughs> we'll see what happens. This is amazing. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jake. Awesome. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.